Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me today is my new friend, Joshua Ferris. Uh, he's written an incredible book about an exciting subject that I know listeners of this show, whether they're atheist or Christian or something else, are going to be interested in because it has to do with the self or even perhaps the soul. Uh, Joshua R. Ferris has a PhD and is a Humboldt Experienced Researcher Fellow and Visiting Researcher at the Ruhr Universität Bochum. He is also Visiting Professor at Missional University and London School of Theology. And previously, he was the Chester and Margaret Palouche Professor at Mundelein Seminary, University of St. Mary of the Lake, Fellow at the Creation Project, and Fellow at Heathrop, I'm probably going to butcher this, college. He has taught at several universities in philosophy, theology, and great books. Joshua has published over 50 peer-reviewed articles. Wow. And chapters in a variety of journals in philosophy, philosophy of religion, analytic theology, systematic theology, historical theology, interdisciplinary studies. He's also published in the Imaginative Conservative. Well, I think that's me. <laughs> the Christian Post, The American Mind, The orth Mere Orthodoxy. Uh, Prost Blogion and Ascentia Foundation, among others. He has recently completed a new monograph entitled The Creation of the Self. Dr. Joshua Ferris, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me, Braxton. Yeah. Well, I'm very excited to be with you. And uh, as I just said a moment ago, Mike Lycona, who some people will know is one of the top scholars on the resurrection in the world and does good work on the Gospels and their genre and all those things. And he has been a longtime friend of mine. And he uh, mentioned to you to reach out to me, and we connected. And man, I'm just thrilled about this to present uh, your work to the world. This is a fascinating subject that I don't know as much about. And so I'm so glad that you're here. In fact, um, if there's anything else that we need to know about you, feel free to tell us. But I guess I would just start by wanting to know what made you interested in this subject and and why a book? I mean, you were at you were you have been around some of the recognizable names among Christian thinkers today. You were at Houston Christian University previously, Houston Baptist, and you were around some of these people a lot. And you yourself are a ridiculously accomplished guy. There are all kinds of things you could write on. Why this? Yeah, thanks. Good question. Yeah, um, I did have a, a great time at Houston Christian. That's where I met Mike uh, Lacona, good friend. He's been a great friend, uh, great New Testament scholar. So, uh, um, and as well as there's several other uh, big names there that have been friends over the years, like Jerry Walls and uh, Bruce Gordon and uh, Melissa Kane Travis and things. And you probably know Melissa Travis. And um, I know who she is. Yeah, Mary Jo Sharp and uh, others. Uh, uh, who are big in the apologetics world as well. Um, uh, you probably know them, I'm sure, very well. So anyway, well, Mary yes. Jo, Ma Mary Jo, and Mike, and Mary Jo's husband Roger were all part of a group that went to Israel. We all went together, and so it was like the greatest thing. I I'm like the Forrest Gump of apologetics. I just find myself around all these incredible people. But uh, but Mary Jo Sharp even photobombed a picture I took in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, uh, I, and I just talked to her and Roger by Zoom uh, a couple of weeks ago. Love them. Just love them. Yeah. Yeah, Roger's a lot of fun. I haven't talked to him in a lot, uh, uh, some time. He's He is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, it was a great time. But uh, t to your question, uh, we could talk about... Um, 
uh, HBU and and people and scholarships, uh, uh, scholars as well, of course. But um, yeah, in short, uh, my interest really is in uh, anthropology or religious and theological anthropology, broadly speaking. And uh, it really goes back to my seminary days at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where I took a systematic theology too. Um, so years ago, I don't remember how long it's been years, but I took it and uh, I took it with Greg Allison, um, loved the course. Uh, and it was in that course that I began to think about uh, the human because you focus on anthropology and systematic too. And you ask questions about what does it mean to be a human constitution questions? Are we bodies or souls or souls and bodies or something of the sort, some sort of hybrid, some sort of machine? Uh, then you ask questions about gender roles and, and, um, questions about uh, um, the nature of the Imago Dei and uh, implications that might have for other issues like transhumanism or AI and these sorts of things. And it was during that time that I was simultaneously really interested in philosophy of mind and questions about uh, constitution specifically and how um, you know questions about um, in the philosophy, you call it uh, myriology or the, the arrangement of um, what makes us us? Uh, what uh, what are we comprised of? Are we bloods and guts? Or are we more than bloods and guts? And uh, so there, I wanted to meld those worlds into two. And that's when I applied to study uh, and pursue my PhD on the topic, particularly on the topic of constitution and how it impinges upon the origins questions. Where is it that we come from? And I think at the end of the day, I think, um, uh, uh, Stephen Priest put it this way, and I think he's right, and my um, works have sort of abounded to this point, that um, ultimately, at the end of the day, human beings are theological beings. And there is something about the nature of being human um, that is uh, deeply and ultimately theological in nature. Ultimately, it points to God. And so that intuition kind of stayed with me into my doctoral studies and beyond. And I loved philosophy, loved theology, so we could talk about the difference between those two different uh, disciplines. I love both, I've, I've published in both. Even when I'm doing more philosophically oriented work, I always have an aim at uh, these bigger questions that really uh, need to be answered by theology at the end of the day, it seems to me. And I think um, there's good reasons for, for thinking that. But um, so that intuition's kind of been in the back of my mind. And it was uh, later on in my doctoral studies about uh, 2011, 2012, that I started to form this seeming or this intuition or this idea, this idea that um, uh, as I was thinking about constitution, the origins of, of the soul question, which is really just an old kind of uh, discussion in church history about um, well, if we are insult beings, well, where do our souls come from? And um, and there was an old sort of idea in in church history that our our souls in some way must come from from God in a way that is distinct from kind of our material bodies or the processes in which uh, give rise to our material bodies or physical bodies. And so uh, that intuition seems right to me. It seems right, and it seemed right then. And really, uh, this question about well, um, um, is it possible for souls to be uh, the types of or the kinds of things that can be uh, um, can be brought about 
by um, biological evolution or something like that. And so there's a there's a um, a lot of literature, predominantly in philosophy, although theology is starting to pick up on it as well in in different and interesting ways, about the question of could if if I am a soul, um, a soul that's distinct from the body, I have these types of um, characteristics or capacities like consciousness and free will and morality or moral conscience and these sorts of things um, that that re- are reflective of a distinct type of thing, the soul, as distinct from the body. Um, is that the type of or the kind of thing that can emerge from these biological processes through genetic drift or natural selection or something of the sort? Is it possible, as some would say, like... Um, uh, William Hasker has been really important in this discussion. He's a, um, a scholar who tries to defend this idea that we are souls and that our souls really are distinct and that in order to make sense of our consciousness, we need something like a soul to make sense of it. Not bodies, not brains, um, not even, you know, really complicated brains will do. But he says uh, we must be souls or something like that. But he, are, he, he makes sense of that by saying that, um, well, in order to make sense of the integrity of the mind-body or the soul-body relationship is being really, in a deep way, intimately, functionally uh, united, um, such that when we hit our head on the top of a doorpost or something, if you're that tall, then it really affects your states of consciousness. It's a physical thing affecting your 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 conscious states of awareness. And he says, well, that the best way to make sense of that is is a, some sort of story that makes sense of the fact that our souls come from our bodies or our brains. And um, so he's really kind of motivated this. But it seems to me at, uh, at a deeper level, there's something about the nature of um, mechanisms in biology and things and the like in evolution that really can't make sense of the fact of our consciousness the fact that we have experiences and the fact that we are those the kinds of things that have those experiences. And so at um, so really um, the creation of self is the product of this um, this idea or this um, intuition, you know, um, intuition that I had back in 2012 that I, um, uh, you know, published on for a while. And then finally I came to this point where I, sat down and put the book together. And so this is kind of the product of that argument. And it seems to me that the soul really does require that we, we are in fact souls for one thing and that the souls are required for consciousness, but also that the, that, that souls uh, depend upon God for coming into existence. So theism is required to make sense of it. Um, uh, we are not physical beings. And uh, 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 at least we're not physical beings uh, primarily or essentially. We have physical bodies um, and we are not uh, the, uh, primarily or uh, essentially the products of, of those uh, physical bodies that we have or the brains that we have. But in fact, it seems to me that not only is theism required to make sense of it, but even probably something like the old view that um, people like Aquinas and Augustine in various parts of his writings, as well as John Calvin would say is a, a creationism, that the soul is actually created by God and that the soul is created directly and immediately by God as, as the being or the agent that brings it about, that 
you or I exist. And there's something really unique about that that makes sense of this kind of fundamental uniqueness about human beings, this fundamental kind of subjectivity. So I really think that exploration of the notion of subjectivity is really interesting uh, in the book, and I do touch on it. But I think this notion of subjectivity, we're seeing some uh, philosophers and theologians really pick up on this idea. And I think it also has obviously value for apologetics, for how it well, is that we make sense of, a, of subjectivity. Yeah. Dr. Ferris, let me ask a couple of questions about this for the clarity of the audience. Now, first of all, I find it interesting that it sounds like what you're doing from what you just said in this book is not only offering uh, an argument for a particular view of the origin of the soul, but it, in so doing, perhaps creating an argument for theism, a theistic argument. Would you say that or was that just something that could easily be done on the basis of some of what you argue in the book? Yeah, no, that that is correct. Um, I am uh, giving an argument for uh, theism as as the explanation uh, or the causal explanation of souls themselves. So I spent about half the book defending the idea of the soul, and then um, and then the latter part defending um, the notion that that God had to had to do it in effect. So in had one sense, would the... you say that this book is kind of your life's work uh, put into this size book on the, so as far as the soul is concerned. So like, it sounds like you're not just presuming the existence of the soul at the start of the book. You're arguing for the existence of the soul. And then you're arguing for a particular understanding of the origin of the soul. And then you think the best explanation for that is theism. Is that a pretty rough outline there? That's correct. Yes, okay. that's right. Yeah. So the other thing that I thought might be helpful for uh, the audience is I think you explained this already, but you, you explained basically two notions from the history of Christian thought right up to today about the origin of the soul. One of those you mentioned as being sort of a, a almost and we know we're talking about soulish stuff, some other substance, perhaps. But but the but you're um, <clears throat> you describe it as being somehow. Uh, now, this is not your view, I take it, but but some folks in the history of Christian thought have argued tr what is what I've understood to be called traducianism, which is the notion that something happens very much like in some way the genetic uh, the genetic merging of of your uh, of your uh, family parents into you, this new constituted physical being and something very much like that, that in fact perhaps even comes in part from whatever's going on with your parents, uh, is, is, how, is how the soul originates. That would be one view. I hope I've articulated that fairly. And then the other view would be the one that you do hold, which is no, it's, it, and, and we call it creationism, not obviously to be confused with young earth creationism, but creationism called such because it is a special creation of God that happens at some point early moment, perhaps conception, I don't know, but, but some early moment. And that view is the view that you landed on. Have I got that right? That's correct. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. I just wanted to get that kind of clear out there for people. I know you explained it, but uh, sometimes it helps me to say it back out loud like that. No, that's good. Yeah, that's right. I, yeah, I think um, I don't get into um, traducianism in this book explicitly. It's a, uh, uh, yeah, um, yeah, we can we could talk about that a bit more. Um, uh, we could talk about the different views of the origins of the soul. Yeah, but but you're right. D yeah, I am defending basically some sort of creationist view, 
And I think in the history of Christian thought, um, what's interesting about traducianism, at least as it's as it was articulated many times early on in church history, it did re require some kind of creation, that God was at least creating one soul, if not two souls, and uh, giving, um, designing those souls in unique ways that they could produce new souls in, mm -hmm. in, in, uh, in history. Yeah, so like a question that comes to yeah. my mind about that is like, and I know this isn't really what, where we want to camp out, but something that just hit me as I was thinking about this that I've thought about before is on the Traducian view, it does seem to be, it, it, unless God does something to specific count, specifically counter this, it strikes me that the only way, like, so if my parents conceive me, uh, if my let's say my parents conceived me and here I am and I have this soul and I got it in part through that process, whatever that process looks like. Um, but if my parents had not conceived me, it strikes me that on the Traducian view, well, the per the experiencer, let's use I'll use that term, the experiencer that that I refer to as me would never have come about. But it seems that on the creationist view, the experiencer that I call me could have come about if God had just decided to create my soul in some other physical body conceived at some other time. Is that a part of this discussion? Is that something that people discuss? And if so, uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, that is certainly a part of the, um, the origins discussion. And that is a, that is a, um, you might even frame it in a, in, a, in the kind of an objection to creationism. And, and you might say that something, this has been framed commonly as an objection to creationism, that uh, creation of the soul that is not young earth creation, as you said. Um, the idea that, um, that our parents, our um, progenitors, have really nothing to do with uh, our soul. So God, um, our soul, um, the nature of our souls have been kind of... Um, uh, 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 they've been kind of decoupled from the whole process of um, generation or um, procreation, you might call it, uh, where our, where, in other words, and we would intuitively think that our, our progenitors, our parents, uh, had something to contribute to um, our being who we are, or your being you and me being me. Your, your parents had something, um, uh, uh, some sort of some sort of role or even essential role in your being the person you are. And my parents had something to do with me being the person that I am. Um, and um, even beyond sort of the, just the idea of, of them giving off certain genetic material or something like that. And so uh, you might take it that that would be some sort of um, at least worry or concern with uh, the creationist view. Sure. So now that I've sufficiently gotten you off track, uh, let's get back on track. So you, so you, so why should I, I don't know if this is kind of where we want to go with this, but, uh, in keeping with the I topic, like the what, what's where that? You're going with this. I think I know where you're going and I like where you're going. I think, well, I was just going to ask, why should I be a creationist then? Oh, okay. Okay. I, I wasn't quite expecting that, but yes. What okay, did you think good. I was going to ask? Cause it sounds more I, interesting to me now. <laughs> um, why should we care about your book? Uh, 
Okay, that's it. And and the and the answer might be it'll explain to me why I should be a creationist. <laughs> yes, that's right. It'll it, it, eventually it'll go there. That's right. Yeah. So um, I think um, there's been a lot of recent discussions uh, about. Uh, the nature of consciousness that are really interesting right now. I mean, if you listen to somebody like Sean Carroll, uh, the famous physicist, you guys, um, would your, your audience probably know who Sean Carroll is? Yes. He's a famous physicist. He's, he's got his, um, in 2011, he wrote this uh, famous article in scientific American, where he said, basically he argued that, um, that, uh, the idea of the soul itself is a crazy idea. Um, and um, in a recent podcast, well, I guess recent, it's been about four months. He had a discussion. Joe Rogan. Uh, well, was he on Joe Rogan? No, I'm he was on of- Joe Rogan at one time. And it's a really great interview because he he basically grants from the beginning that, yes, of co- like with the design stuff, design, not where we are now, but with design arguments, he basically granted that, hey, it, of course, everything looks designed. I mean, if that's the most natural thing someone landing on planet Earth would think, is, oh, wow, this looks really designed. And then, of course, he so he grants that intuition. He also grants our intuition about like a bunch of things that Christians want him to grant related to morality and all kinds of things, uh, but, but only in a soft sense. I mean, he doesn't actually, if he just grants the intuitions about some of these things, but he was there, and I think he said the very thing that you, the, the soul just that's dead in the water type thing, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. I, I, um, I think, um, those, you know, kind of that, that whole set of ideas that he was granting, well, it seems this way. Um, I think, um, those actually, those ideas are worth exploring as, as ways of pointing back to God. And he, obviously he would reject those, but in another, um, episode on his particular podcast, he's just, he's, um, having this discussion about the nature of artificial intelligence with um, this um, cognitive scientist, uh, Raphael um, Millery. I'm not sure how to pronounce his his last name, but they're having this discussion. It's really fascinating because Carol's talking about artificial intelligence, and he actually thinks, well, um, given his sort of kind of naturalistic perspective, he thinks it's possible that... um, artificial intelligence could become conscious at some point, could have consciousness, could be aware of itself, in other words. And so he relays this, this uh, fascinating conversation with his, uh, uh, the person, uh, Ra- Raphael, and he says, uh, he relays this conversation he had with um, this chatbot on, uh, uh, online, and um, they're having this conversation, and he asks the chatbot something like, what is consciousness? And chatbot gives a definition and they go back and forth talking about the definition of consciousness and then finally sean says well are you conscious and and the chatbot says no no i'm not of course not and then they have this kind of argument back and forth and sean is trying to convince the chatbot that the chatbot is in fact conscious (laughs) and um that he should believe that he is conscious or that he could be that and um, so you're listening to this, and I, fa- I mean, I found the conversation quite fascinating and silly at the same time. Yeah. Um, 
and I think most people listening to it would find it at least intuitively silly. Like, there's yeah. Now let me. About- I don't. I don't want to break your flow, but yeah. Now that's something. So first of all, you ended up studying a field that is and doing your uh, doctoral research on a field that you, that I don't know if you had any idea how huge it was going to be. It's like everything with AI and all that stuff that's going on right now. But yeah, I think intuitively it is like, like I, I almost can't even imagine an argument where it would have premises that are stronger that my, than my own immediate awareness that, that is, that, that, that my intuition, I guess not awareness, but my intuition that that is not possible. That's just a very complex toaster. It's never going to think a real thought, but I would think that on naturalism, one would, that would be a much more expected type of thing to happen. Like you would expect if all we are, are meat robots, then if we have a robot with a complex enough cognitive system or however you want to phrase that, then, then we would imagine. I, I th- it strikes me this is probably why Dawkins and people like that say, oh, yeah, eventually uh, our stuff will become conscious because that's all we are. Whereas for people like me and you who affirm a soul, um, no, that's the missing piece that would have to be there to, to make the machine wake up, so to speak, with real consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think that's right. That's and I I think I like the way you you framed it. I think um, uh, from their vantage point, they would anticipate that this would be at least a possibility if it's not yet um, if it if it's not actually uh, true yet. It is a possibility somewhere down the line. Um, And from their own um, assumptions about about the nature of consciousness itself as being some sort of product of, of uh, uh, biological evolution and being comprised of material bits in some sort of complex configuration. They would have to say that it seems it's, um, that um, artificially uh, we, could, we could produce some sort of uh, conscious being or self-conscious being. It's at least within the realm of possibility. Um, and it seems to me that... Um, as I was listening to the show, I was thinking, and I know a lot of other people would feel this pull, right? And I think this is a this is the right sort of pull. There's something off about that. There's something really fundamentally missing about that. There's something that uh, rings true with us when we listen to Sean Carroll having a, this this uh, this this argument with the chatbot. There's something really wrong about that. That we say, yeah, that it, the, my every fiber of my being says. That is not only not the case that the chatbot is not conscious, but it's not possible that chatbots could be conscious um, or could become conscious. And that's because there's something about the nature of uh, uh, chatbots themselves that have been um, uh, uh, predictably produced through this Mm -hmm. complex process. We have created the chatbot itself, but when we uh, try to, compare step back and compare that with our own consciousness and how it is that we experience the world there's something that seems to be uh, fundamentally different and uh, i think i think the way you put it I, I i like the way you put it you put it in this way how did you put it you put it you said you said something like it would be hard to um conceive of something more fundamental that wherein we could actually step outside of ourselves in order to make determinant that this thing was conscious itself in a way that we, we, 
in, you know, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but I like the way you just put it. But um, I think um, I think um, this is why somebody like Paul Bloom, the the uh, developmental psychologist, has called us um, common sense dualists or natural born dualists. We are just uh, in, in, in some ways, we're just kind of hardwired, not hardwired um, in the uh, 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 materialist sense. Uh, I'm using that metaphorically, of course, but hardwired to believe that we are soul beings. We are uh, what philosophers call dualists. We believe that there are two kinds of things such that um, my, um, my toddler, when she looks at her hands or her feet, she makes an intuitive distinction herself. I don't have to tutor her, train her to think this way. Now, hopefully over time, as she reflects more deeply about herself, she will come to a deeper understanding that she is a soul or something like that. But when she looks at her hand, she makes an intuitive distinction. This hand in some way is distinct from me as a subject that experiences the hand. I mean, it's really possible that I could lop off my hand and my hand would be something else other than my body, but it, it's, it, and it, it would be an object of, of empirical study that would be distinct from me as the subject studying or doing the empirical work. And, um, or even so just I, with death, I would just imagine that primitive cultures would, would <clears throat> look at a dead body and they'd say, well, Bill was there a minute ago. Now here's this, here's Bill's body, but Bill doesn't seem to be there anymore. Where's Bill? Bill must be somewhere else, you know? That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 I think, um, yeah, that's right. That's, that's right. Um, I was going to go there, um, a few steps down, but yeah, that's, that's, a, I agree with you. I agree with that. Yeah. We well, have, while I have you stopped, have... I should, I should say something we moved off of Sean Carroll, but I did want to say for people that think that maybe, uh, whatever you think about Sean Carroll versus William Lane Craig and who won that debate, it sounds like Sean Carroll completely lost his debate with the chat bot. Yes, I think <laughs> so. Maybe William Lane Craig. May, maybe you think William Lane Craig didn't get it done, but the the AI did. So we can give it that much. Yeah, I like that. I I agree. I think that the chatbot probably knows better. Well, I guess it depends on who you ask, right? Yeah. Um. That's uh, that's a weird thought experiment. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's because the the chatbot can make knowledge claims, but I don't know that it can have knowledge. I, like it, it can't ever like, well, kind of like we were saying, you can't step outside of yourself and how would it ever know that it knows uh, everything that it outputs is determined. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, thing. And that's a question. Well, that could go a whole nother way. I was going to ask you like this being a completely programmed system with an AI or something, um, I guess I'm kind of channel surfing with what we're talking about, but with, if it's, um, if it, there has to be some level, we don't have a real indeterminacy with these, uh, chat bots, right? Everything is at some level, uh, not entirely random, right? I would, I would think, and I would imagine that would cause problems, but now I'm just spitballing whatever comes to my mind. Don't let me get you off track from where you were headed. No, you're right. I agree with you. I think there's something that is, um, uh, yeah, that that's predictable about it. I mean, that that's why we can rely upon these chatbots. We we know kind of the program that has to be put into play. I mean, 
hypothetically, we know the, the, the program we can put in in order to, uh, to, to create these chatbots. Like any other material thing, we know, we know the, um, the program or the, the, uh, the parts that we have to put together in a certain functional configuration to make them um, and so on and so forth. There's all material things are that way. There's something predictable and reliable about them. We rely on them. That's why we can make these products and we can sell them and, and um, sell them to consumers and make lots of money. Um, but, um, but we were yeah, back on, we were, we were back on the, uh, well, re real quick, let me catch this. Is that why you think the soul, I would imagine you would say that not only is the soul best explained by theism, but on top of that, it is the means by which we are able to, I think you mentioned free will, have some form of free will. Maybe you would say libertarian free will. And, uh, we would have, uh, moral, uh, meaningful moral, uh, choices and stuff and and that sort of thing like if all we had was matter maybe th th there would be like this strong this strict determinism but i imagine you put some of those features along along with the soul right yeah I, that's right that's right i think um in in i mean i think in order to make sense of of, of moral knowledge uh, yeah we could go down that road um i think um you you have to have something like a soul in order to have um, some sort of meaningful notion of free will even if you affirm something like libertarian freedom um, and you might even say that's well that's the common sense position that uh, there is no um, uh, previous uh, causal mechanism that 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 ultimately explains certain decisions that i make um, uh, then you would have to have something like a soul um, i mean um, this gets back to other intuitions that we have about the self as well as about God himself and whether or not he has freedom and, and, and these sorts of things. Right. But there yeah. is, um, it does get at this, this heart um, kind of matter about this intuition about, can we produce persons or subjects themselves in a lab in the same way that we could produce uh other chemical things or other material things. And I, so I think that intuition is motivated by this question. Can we reproduce persons? Could we produce them in the first place? And then could we reproduce them in a lab? And uh, my intuitions, and I kind of try to spell this out, my intuitions say, no, absolutely not. It's impossible. And this is why we haven't even begun to get at the consciousness question. Uh, now, with material things or chemical things, we can produce those or re and even reproduce them in a lab because we have a sufficient knowledge about those things. But the sufficient knowledge required of a person or a subject of the particular experiences that subjects are having is something um, even more fundamental that only individual persons can have of themselves. So there's always something about the nature of subjects and persons that is outside of the, the realm of the empirical or the realm of scientific um, uh, 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 discovery. It is something that is not conditioned by science itself. It is something um, altogether different. This is why in the book, um, one of um, my forward writer, he actually says, yeah, Joshua does a lot of analytic philosophy in here. But at the end of the day, he really kind of sides with the poets because there's something beautiful about the reality of subjectivity and personhood. 
that scientists, uh, empirical studies cannot explain. Um, they can't even uh, access. Only the person can access. And, and I think there's something that is, um, at least in, in some ways, and this does get into the free will discussion, or at least what's underlying the free will discussion. And that is, um, there is something that will always be, to some extent, outside of the purview of scientific uh, investigation or you know, determination. It, it, it strikes me, too, that like with with when we're talking about, say, uh, morality, one of the only ways we can study it is kind of to introspect about ourselves because that's the way we have the most direct access or direct access to those moral impulses. They are moral impulses are, are something that takes place in human beings. And so I observe it by looking at my own, uh, looking at my own uh, sensations or impressions about uh, moral actions. And I wonder if something like that is true. We're talking a lot about intuition and I can hear some atheists saying, oh, they're basing all this stuff on intuitions. And we're not basing it all on intuitions, but I think that there, I think that it's appropriate to think about your intuitions when you're thinking about something that science can't quite reach and is very internal to you as a human being. One of the ways you might observe it in quotes would be to introspect about your intuitions. Um, would you agree? That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think um, I think we have to make sense of. Yeah, there's different characteristics of the mind that um, that uh, those who who would who would um, uh, those atheists who would um, who would um, challenge the idea of the soul or consciousness uh, as being so heavily reliant upon um, uh, a conscious. Um, so heavily reliant upon, sorry, I was just distracted. From intuitions, moment, but yeah. intuitions. Yeah. Um, uh, that, that is a common objection. And so even for those who are more scientifically minded, naturalistically minded, um, they would, they would use the intuitions themselves. Um, there is something more fundamental about the nature of, um, intuitions that itself depends upon, um, uh, uh, a more stable intuition about the self in the first place, um, that I think is that, that, that I think is important for how it is that we arrive at, um, or characterize the nature of what it means to be a person or a subject. And that is, um, um, just this first person perspective that each individual person has of themselves and uh, the nature of, of consciousness itself is as something that is qualitative and uh, phenomenally experienced. Um, there's something about the nature of, of, of qualities themselves or um, uh, uh, as compared to quantities. Quantities are something you might argue that can be um, studied empirically or by the scientists, but uh, qualities are something that um, are altogether different. Um, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, so, uh, I think we need to look at, is there something about the nature of physical, the physical things that can capture the nature of the first person perspective and phenomenal consciousness? In other words, you'd have to bridge the hard problem of consciousness, right? 
Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. So um, a moment ago, I cut you off to talk about some other things, um, which is what I've been doing this entire time. But there's so many there's so many rabbit trails of interest here when we get into these waters. But you were uh, talking a moment ago about, OK, I, you said I had jumped ahead a few s- steps when I said, you know, Bill was here a minute ago. Bill's dead now. Where's Bill? Bill's gone off somewhere else. And you were talking about if your daughter were to look at her hand, she has this um, awareness that she could even lose that hand. That's her hand. That's not her uh, in the same sense that her conscious experience is her. And so uh, were you going somewhere specific with that that we could get to yeah. back to? I, I ultimately yeah. want to get back to this creationist position and uh, the, th- the, the ultimately what you what you think demonstrates creationism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, sorry about the uh, the beeping in the background. I I can't seem to. Uh, get I it didn't to hear stop it on my computer. And it you didn't hear it. Good. <laughs> okay. Good. Um, good. Um, yeah. So I think um, I think the this underlying intuition about uh, and I think in, in some respects every everyone is, is starting with intuitions about what it means to be a self. And so uh, in order to analyze those intuitions and try to make sense of those, we have to make sense of, well, are these intuitions merely sort of one uh, linguistic in nature? Are they, um, are they, um, or are they actually, uh, as philosophers would call them properties of something are they properties that are really distinct? Are they distinguishing two distinct types of properties? And so I think um, I think when we uh, when we begin to reflect upon the nature of phenomenal experience, what it means to experience or or experience what it is like to be or to experience myself, to experience the world, um, is there genuinely two distinct types of properties or two distinct types of knowledge. So um, one of the ways we could, I mean, there's several ways we could think about this. One of the ways is to think about um, uh, an old argument by uh, Frank Jackson. Um, Frank Jackson uh, comes up with, uh, he he's famous for this argument called. Is this the, the uh, lady the in the black and white room? Yeah, that's right. Mary. In the I black love and this white one. Room. I love it. Yes. So, um, Interestingly, I think um, uh, Howard Robinson came up with this, uh, basically the exact same argument, um, but Frank Jackson was famous for it. Um, he, he became famous for it. But anyway, um, this, this famous argument by Frank Jackson, you know, he makes this argument, okay, so Mary is this, this brilliant um, scientist of color and, and, and neuroscience, uh, uh, the neuroscience underlying the experience of color. And so she uh, hypothetically knows all there is to know about uh, the nature of color and the neuroscience undergirding the experiences of color. And so, but all her life, um, she's lived in this black and white room, hypothetically. And, um, and, uh, uh, um, one day um, she goes out of that black and white room. Maybe she's locked up and she's forced to study 
um, the nature of color and neurology. Um, but one day she's, um, the guard unlocks the door and lets her out and she's able to go outside and experience the color um, green in the grass. And she's able to experience the sun, the yellow of the sun. And when, when she experiences green, she's like, oh, I get it now. I understand there's something new here. Um, something that she really didn't understand. Now, maybe she had um, the empirical or scientific knowledge um, about the neurology underlying it, and maybe she knew all about the physics of light itself, but she hadn't actually experienced that light itself, uh, or that, um, I'm sorry, she hadn't ex actually experienced um, color itself, the, na uh, the nature of what it means to be green or what it means to experience the color green. And so um, when she experiences green, she actually experiences something new, something that is um, what philosophers call qualitative, qualitative experience. And um, this is something that cannot be confused with um, either the neurology cor uh, correlating to um, the experience of green. So you might be able to pinpoint on a brain map where uh, Mary's experiencing this green color, but that's not the same thing as actually experiencing the green color. You might even um, give some sort of physical explanation of the green itself and maybe how the light of the sun hits on, on the grass itself to produce this green um, that then subjects then um, can experience but that itself is not the same thing as the green in the grass that is being experienced. In fact, there, is, um, there are several free features that seem to be unaccounted for by uh, neurology as well as by uh, physics itself that's undergirding this, this, this whole event of Mary experiencing green. Um, uh, so uh, there's this novel um, qualitative experience that can't be quite. Um, there's um, there's this uh, arguably this private experience that Mary has. She has private access to her own thoughts and to her own experiences about the green color, um, and um, and so uh, there 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 is this um, there is this something that is radically new, and so philosophers would say that. Well, at a minimum, what we have in this thought experiment is um, two distinct types of properties. One that's more physical, right? That's or one that is physical. And one that is uh, phenomenal or experiential and something that's dependent, directly dependent upon consciousness or the subjects of consciousness experience. So you have something like propositional knowledge would be all the information she knew in the black and white room about light waves and everything related to the science of color and perhaps even poetry people had written talking about color and all that sort of thing. That's like propositional knowledge, but then she has the experiential knowledge of actually experience the, what is it like sort of a uh, piece of this so that, um, you know, like it, I could know everything. I, I could know everything about riding a bicycle and about weight displacement and all those kind of things. But that will never tell me exactly what the experience of sailing down a, a, a hill on a bike is actually like, you know. Yes, that's right. Mm -hmm. That's right. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there is something about um, the nature of what it is like um, to experience those things that um, that is not captured in um, in uh, what we what we know about physics itself or physical objects. There is something that is not captured in um, in that uh, in in physical knowledge itself that can be empirically studied and, and the like. So I think um, at a minimum, like as you said, we have uh, what this shows is that there is physical um, uh, knowledge or even propositional knowledge of the physical that is distinct from um, from phenomenal knowledge itself. And yeah, so, that's the better way I should say it. Yeah. Um, and I think um, what we can extrapolate from that further is that there is something about the nature of phenomenal knowledge itself um, that is is fundamental to even physical knowledge itself. Um, so uh, this would also be true of the fact that there are certain truths about, say, the first person having the knowledge or the experience itself that is uh, undergirding or fundamental to uh, uh, um, uh, the knowledge of physical things themselves. Physical things are, in other words, in some ways mediated by the first person knowledge that for uh, that persons or subjects of experience have of those things. And so um, there is something so deeply embedded in our intuition that it's it's not just intuition that is so um, flimsy or um, can be easily um, dismissed as as just a belief that, you know, some weird group of people have or believe these weird substance dualists who believe in these eerie, spooky, ghost-like things. It's not just that, right? It's not, it's not like beliefs that you can easily just discard, um, like um, as if you could put on and off a hat. No, these are, um, when I'm talking about these kinds of intuitions, and I think intuitions that we were, we've been talking about, um, that uh, someone like um, even Paul Bloom and other philosophers who are, who are pointing out that we have this um, cognitive disposition to believe in this way because we're kind of built that way, as it were. Um, not literally built that way, right? Um, we're not machinery. We're not that sort of thing. Um, we're just inclined to believe that because there's something about the nature of the intuition that is deeply embedded in um, uh, who we are um, that even is a signifier, a pointer to who we are that is deeply foundational in terms of our knowledge structure about uh, ourselves and ourselves in relation to the world that is worth um, getting clear on and exploring. Um, so um, that knowledge argument at least is gets us part of the way there. It shows that there is 
um, or illustrates the fact that there is something distinct between these two types of knowledge. And, but I think we, we shouldn't end there. We need to go further and say more about what it is that is undergirding even knowledge of physical things. There is phenomenal experience that is not captured by physical things itself. There's also the first person perspective that um, carries with it um, something um, distinct in the world that is not capturable by science itself. My first person perspective is not your first person perspective about the world. There's something fundamentally unique about your first person perspective compared to my first person perspective. Um, and so um, I feel like, are we going too far? Are we getting too, um, too deep into these issues? No. In fact, uh, the intuition thing is really helpful because I'm, I'm very personally interested in the value of intuition and how far we can take it and that sort of thing. And uh, you did a really interesting job explaining all of that. Um, no, I, I think this is great. I'm, it's like every time we turn a new corner in this discussion, uh, it's another exciting topic that I wish we could spend an hour on just that topic. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. We could spend a lot more time on this. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Um, so what yeah. would you say? Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go, go, please. Yeah, go ahead. So, so, uh, so the book itself is trying to establish the soul and the origin of the soul, right? Yes, yes. So um, the book itself, Creation of Self, uh, hence the name, is trying to establish that um, there's something um, that not only requires an, a non-physical explanation uh, of who we are as persons or subjects, selves, but it requires a theistic explanation. And um, well, um, and even more than that, that requires that um, God himself is um, the explanation of, of the existence of souls or the origination of, of our, our soulish existence. So when does he, when did, when did God, I was born in 1980, uh, in December, on December 20th, 1980, uh, let's say it was at one o'clock in the morning. When did God ensoul me? Or when did, let's say that's not right. When did God put my soul into my physical body? Was it at conception? How, how do you, how do you go about that sort of a question? Okay. Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah. Um, I don't address that question directly in the book, but it, it okay. is a it is an important question. It's an interesting question. Well, I and think, it also um, begs it begs you to speculate, right? I mean, you can't know for sure, but but it would make an impact, I think, for pro lifers who would like to say, uh, from the moment of conception, you have not only a physical body but also a soul. Right, 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 right. Um, but would I you think, have you just left it sort of for your comfort? you're willing to say, look, as far as I can go with, with the evidence, it, I just know that at some point early in a being's, a human being's existence, if, if not from the jump of that physical body's existence, but at some point there, they are, there, they are, there is a soul created by God. 
Yeah, so... Yeah, this is a this is a tricky question because I well I think there's different ways to come at this question to make determinate that um, I mean I am a pro lifer and I think um, at the moment of conception the soul is there and I think there are different ways to 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 argue that that is the case and that there is a high degree of probable evidence that that is the case. Um, there is something about um, the material. Um, material views of persons that would uh, open up the possibility of a decreed kind of existence, a decreed kind of humanity. And this would also be true of other views that um, are not exactly dualist, but uh, are, um, well, there's a, there's a new view out there that um, parallel to kind of uh, the physicalist views of persons, that our personhood or consciousness is a product of lower level physical particles interacting as well as um, conscious like or conscious disposed properties interacting that come together at some complex um, uh, come about through some sort of complex um, arrangement is this panpsychism that's right panpsychism yeah yeah so yeah, my Philip, view is, Philip Goff I think is the is the big guy that I hear yeah. about with that yeah that's right philip goff is is one of the serious um defenders of 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 a kind of cosmopsychism that for a second uh in the secular world has a lot of um pull and plausibility to it and uh, of course his sort of view is being platformed quite a lot whereas um theistic dualism the sort that i'm defending has been um well, I, there, there's not many people um, defending it explicitly in those those uh, discussions. The secularists are getting platformed quite a bit more, unfortunately, and um, Philip Goff is kind of at the front of those discussions. But anyway, his sort of view does lend itself. So I'm coming at your, I'm answering your question indirectly. Um, that sort of view does lend itself to a kind of, I think, a degreed kind of, um, existence personal existence i see immediately what you mean and just for anyone that doesn't know in the audience the panpsychist view and i'll probably not say it nearly as uh, with the specificity that uh, dr ferris would but uh my my understanding is that you have these these fundamental particles or whatever that or, or some sort of matter that is itself uh has has some sort of consciousness capable aspect to it and and that if these are put together in the right order or in the right configuration like i don't know let's say a human brain then something happens that the conscious the consciousness was already there but you put enough consciousness legos together and you got a real man basically it's something like that right that's right yeah, yeah. i think that's basically right i think that's basically mm -hmm. right yeah i think um that becomes problematic and for um those who are theist or Christian inclined, those sorts of views have uh, their challenges in, in themselves for those those kinds of reasons. Um, it's not clear to me that on uh, at, at one level, the question you're raising is an interesting one and it's a fair one. At another level, it's not clear to me that the um, that we can make determinate that there is a fact of the matter that is um, that the body is is somehow present 
um, without a soul or that we could make determinate in some way that um, that there is some sort of degreed kind of personhood. I mean, for the kind of view that I'm advancing, there is a kind of absolute identity. If you're, if you're either there or you're not. Um, so, um, yeah. So, uh, somebody like John Foster, who makes a, um, a similar argument. Um, well, he, in, in, in two, the early 2000s, he wrote this argument, a brief defense of um, Cartesianism. And um, that's a big term, so we should probably sit, step back and explain it. Um, Cartesianism is the view that I am um, basically my soul that has a body or interacts with the body. And um, it's my soul that is uh, the carrier of my identity. Fundamentally, it's my soul that is the bearer of my identity. And in that original article, which he's admittedly had some influence on me, he makes a very, um, he doesn't spell out or flesh out the argument, um, but he makes an argument that, um, that there does seem to be this intimate functional arrangement between the body and the soul. And there is no determinate way to make, um, or certainly no empirical way to make determinate um, the, um, the, the relationship of the soul to the body, let alone the further question of um, the origins of the soul in relation to the body. Um, and, and so um, he ends on the note of, well, this ends up being a pretty strong argument in favor of, of theism. And I think he's basically right. And so this is um, kind of what I'm trying to spell out in the creation of self where it seems to me that there's something about the nature of personal identity that could not come about from a bottom-up process, physical process or biological process in the way that all these physicalist views, as well as these, even these other secularist views in many cases, most cases, require some sort of um, bottom-up objective process that at least in theory, could be empirically um, studied or made determinate, um, so long as we have a sufficient knowledge of 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 the kind of quote unquote material that goes into the making of a person. Um, if we can um, uh, understand sufficiently the material that goes into the making of human beings, then we can, in a sense. This is the whole intuition behind a lot of the um, recent AI discussions or even the transhumanist discussions, that there is something about us that is reproducible in the same way or in a parallel way that um, um, all material bodies or um, all things can be re reproduced uh, through, through this lawful pro, uh, process, this lawful gr uh, ground up process that, um, produces just higher level organisms that are, um, complex of arrangements of lower level stuff that get, um, that, uh, come about through this sort of lawful regularity. The intuition that's driving the book is that, no, there's something about the nature of persons and subjects 
that can't be that way, that cannot be explained bottom-up, that cannot be lawful regularities. And if they could, then there's something about the nature of you and I that is ultimately, as one author put it, um, makes us anonymous beings, that generalizes us in a way that makes a, that, that eradicates or even ironically eliminates the nature of persons and subjectivity in, 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 in this case. And so we're back at this sort of like, and I think at one level, um, this is kind of what I spell out, and this is kind of an implication. Obviously, there are different physicalist views out there. Some are called eliminativist physicalist views. Eliminativist in the sense that uh, qualitative phenomenal experience is eliminated because we are physicalists, right? Those things are eliminated. Those properties are um, not even uh, uh, non-identical to uh, neural properties or brain properties or neural events, but they're not reducible to them. They just don't exist. Um, some have called this an illusion. Um, our experience is an illusion or it's not real. Um, and I think at one um, in a roundabout way, this is implied in the book, that without something like a soul view that God brings about, ourselves become eliminated. <laughs> That's, I was trying to think of, uh, and I, I've got the name on the tip of my tongue, the atheists, uh, what was it? There, there's a guy that debated several years ago, some apologist, and he, uh, was an eliminativist. Um, and he, he wrote a book, something like a guide to atheism or something. And I, I can't remember, but he was, but, but he basically argued this and he said some things in the book, uh, that just sound absurd. I mean, that, 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 and, and my, here's my take on it. Here's my understanding of what's being said. So when you hear them, these eliminativists make all these comments about, these things, it sounds kind of like, oh, you're saying then that uh, my conscious experience doesn't really exist uh, or isn't. And I think what it means, I think really what we would, what, what I've understood the best in that realm to be saying, and maybe, maybe they actually are saying the more difficult thing, but it strikes me that what they're saying is something like, okay, um, for those that are familiar with Libet experiments in, in Benjamin Libet experiments in uh, free will, they would know that, uh, that, the, that the impression that many take away from the scientific experiments there is that, okay, your, your head has electrodes on it, let's say. This is not how Libet did it. He did it with a clock. But, but we've done it now in other ways. You have two boxes in front of you with two lights, and each box has a button. And you pick whichever one you want whenever you want to push it, but the light will come on before you'll push the button. And the reason for that is because uh, ostensibly the, um, the, the electrodes on your brain are measuring the, the choice before you act to actively consciously are aware of the choice to go push the button. And then as, so as a result of that, the choice was already made before you became aware of the choice. Now, uh, Libet came back and said, actually, um, even if that's the case, you don't, you may, you can refrain, you can stop yourself from doing whatever thing. And so maybe you don't have free will, but you do have free won't, which ends up meaning you have free will again. But let's just take what some have taken those libid experiments to mean, 
which is the choice is already made before you ever become consciously aware of it. And here's the leap in my, as far as I'm concerned, since we think that happens when we tell you to arbitrarily choose a moment to push a button, we can now extrapolate that maybe that's what's happening in all your decisions all the time, which to me is a huge leap. Uh, there's a big difference between me picking to push a button when you told me to try not to think about it and do it randomly versus uh, the, the sort of cognitive chaos that goes on when I try to decide where to have dinner or who to marry or where to go to school. Right. And so uh, but but if you just took that first part of that and you went with what many naturalists take, now, which is OK. Uh, or not even just naturalists, but people that don't affirm libertarian free will. And so they say, okay, they're, they're, you're, everything that's decided, all of that's going to happen before you're aware of it. So your conscious experience is kind of an unnecessary afterthought. And in that way, we can maybe say that it doesn't exist uh, or, or at least doesn't matter, I guess. I, I don't know. That I've, so when I've, I've heard pop apologists describe Alex Rosenberg, uh, people like that. That's the name I was trying to think of and saying, OK, here's the limitativists. They say that the that the self doesn't really exist, whereas I think uh, what they seem to be actually saying under the hood is not that it's not real, but just that it's irrelevant, basically. Is that what, what do you am I fix me on, on that stuff? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. OK, so I think. Um... I think uh, that's right. Some of them would say, would argue that it is irrelevant because it, um, it, it doesn't provide any, um, it doesn't do any work for us in explaining um, what's going on causally in, in the physical world. We can do everything that we need to do in or in, in terms of explaining um, our, um, uh, explaining us uh, without say so Yaguan Kim in his his book um, he would he uh, what's his what's his book called his 2005 book I forgot what it's called now but it's been a long time since I've read it but he um, basically uh, um, in his defense of physicalism he basically argues for a reductive explanation of of persons and consciousness and and he basically says that we can get everything on physicalism without, uh, so just so long as we, uh, we we do without qualia. And he says, well, that's not very hard to do because qualia doesn't provide any causal explanations for us. It doesn't doesn't really do anything in terms of explaining um, the machinery or what's going on in um, the physical system itself, and um, and so we don't need it. Um, and uh, he makes some some he makes an argument something to that effect. I'm trying to think of what the name of the book is. Anyway, it came out in 2005. One of his most popular, um, important books. Oh, physicalism or something near enough. Yeah, it was on my bookshelf. Okay, physicalism or something near enough. So he basically argues for a kind of reductivist physicalism and says that we really don't need qualia to make sense of that uh, anything. It uh, doesn't really do much work for us. So. Um, you know, it's hard to deny our experiences. I mean, they're so fundamental to us. Um, but he says, well, it doesn't really do any causal work for us. So we can just kind of, um, do without it in our sort of, uh, of, of theories 
Yeah, um, like the most meaningful thing about humanity that makes everything else possible. And I don't worry about it too much. It's irrelevant. <laughs> yeah, right. It seems to me... Um, yeah, Daniel Dennett does something like this when he tries to... Um, what's it called? Um, it's called like heterophenomenology. He tries to make sense of... Uh, all uh, qualitative experiences by way of uh, correlative studies to uh, brain um, to neural events that, uh, that we can detect in brain scans and so um, he he def ends up defending something like an eliminativist view of consciousness wherein he's trying to basically um, through this this method he's trying to identify um, Con, um, consciousness with um, these neural events that can be scanned on brains, but uh, the phenomenal experience itself is um, is something uh, that isn't real. Um, but the question then is, um, for him uh, or for for those who are engaging with this work, the question is, well, is um, is what's going on merely a matter of linguistic predication of of this experiential reality that's that's um, that we can talk about, right? We can talk about it, but just because we can talk about it, um, the eliminativists would say it doesn't mean that it's it's real. So you could have something like a linguistic dualism or predicate dualism, but you don't have actual properties there the experiential properties themselves are not necessarily real and um, they, uh, they, they're, they're not doing anything, um, uh, let alone some eerie substance that is the substance of those unique types of properties. Um, so, but then in response, the question is, um, when we're doing the brain scans, can we, as uh, first-person perceivers, um, uh, make um, legitimate correlations between the neural data and the experiences themselves in a way that um, doesn't require, first, the first-person perspective um, itself? And can we make sense of that uh, first-person perspective in a purely quantitative or third-person way um, in um, uh, when we're when we're doing these correlations, um, brain map correlations? And the question, the the answer to the question seems to be uh, quite obviously no. Uh, that there is something about the nature of, of first-person knowledge itself that's that's necessary and required and um, is not merely a linguistic device of talking about something that doesn't actually exist, but something actually is there and there are two distinct types of properties. Huh. Does that yeah. make sense? It does. And it, clar it clarified some things for me. I know that Dennett uh, has been very provocative in this regard and uh, has that book, uh, Consciousness Explained, that people say uh, should be titled Consciousness Explained Away, even though uh, he says that's not fair. He says he hasn't tried to explain it away. But, uh, of course, that just loops back into the whole discussion and the nuance that we just had. Well, listen, um, we've been at this for a little while. 
Is there anything you'd like to say just in summary and, and motivate people that they should look more deeply into this and get your book? I want people to get this book and, uh, and I want them to know who you are. Uh, what, what would you say to kind of summarize or, or to, uh, what, you know, express what's on your heart about this issue and, um, leave the audience with? Yeah, I think there's, um, there's a lot going on in, in kind of public, um, consciousness right now and the public discussions that are taking place, uh, concerning consciousness and, um, what it is. And I think there's even, um, with all this, these discussions that are taking place about chatbots, artificial intelligence, um, transhumanism, can we, can we create persons ourselves? There's all these questions that are being, um, that are emerging from film as well. And I think there's even, um, maybe, um, the beginnings of doubts about, um, whether there is anything really you truly unique about the nature of personhood itself. And, um, I mean, I, I would say that I think, um, there are really, really good reasons to not be fooled by these quote unquote scientists who are pontificating about the nature of consciousness, but oftentimes are really not saying anything at all about it. Um, there's something about the nature of consciousness that is uh, utterly unique and in some ways mysterious, yet known by individuals that requires theism. And I think, um, and this, this goes back to the original uh, note or um, what I said originally about the nature of persons being ultimately theological in nature. I think I there that. is something about the nature of personhood and being a human even where there's lots of discussions about what it means to be a human right now. And there's even lots of questions about whether or not we can um, commodify human beings like we commodify everything else for our own consumerist desires. And we can capture everything through some sort of um, uh, scientific means that we can control. Um, I think there's something about the nature of persons that defies that kind of commodification and so so, there, so so i have two possible future show topics if you'd be willing to come back on and that is we're still recording people are going to see this but but number one is you're talking about i think what you're talking about what's called transhumanism is that is that right and and so like i am very much like i grew up in the 90s and when the matrix came out and science fiction that has a lot of philosophy baked into it and so there is something about me that like, just like I want to have, you know, AirPods or if, if Apple comes out, I'm not going to put those VR things, but if they come out with glasses like this, I, I'll do that. So what, you know, seriously, like what if the day comes when I can have an eye installed or whatever, where I can see like a hundred miles or, uh, you know, process a book, read the whole book, like a speed reader or something, you know, um, I'd love to have you come back on and talk to us about the ethics that we might consider in looking at that. And then also you mentioned uh, gender roles as being something that you were very interested in and that this plays into all this stuff about uh, philosophy of mind. 
and obviously right now that would be a fascinating discussion. So perhaps we can get back together and talk about those issues. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, I love those two issues. They're fascinating, important topics right now um, in general, as well as for Christians, of course. All right. Well, listen, I, I've enjoyed this so much, uh, Dr. Ferris. I feel like I just made a new friend and uh, hope that you feel like you got to say what you wanted to say. Uh, where can people find more from you other than to go into the dis- uh, description for this video and go to Amazon and get that book? Where else can people go to see more from you? Yeah, uh, good question. So um, I have um, some of my uh on the academic side, more academic side, my academic papers up on academia. So I have my own academia site. I have a um, my own website, although I'm not sure if it's up right now. It should be up shortly if it's not. JoshuaRFerris.com. JoshuaRFerris.com. You can check me out there, That's easy. of course. And then um, uh, there are um, uh, you can find some of my papers and and um, YouTube. Uh, videos up there uh, once it's up. And so academia, that, joshuarferris.com, as well as um, uh, I have a uh, The Creation of Self, a Facebook social media page about the book. Oh, good. And uh, so that's up. You can check out there. Um, and uh, I have my own Amazon page as well. You can check that out along with a couple of other books that I've written and several other books that I've edited. So you can check that out as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Ferris, thank you so much for being on the program today. I hope that we can work together in the near future. And I look forward to reading this book. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And uh, how hot is it down there today? And are you in Texas? I'm actually in Alabama. Thankfully, Texas is probably even worse. Yeah, uh, it's pretty hot today. It was like 98 earlier. Oh, uh, with, same here. With the same humidity. Here. Well, yeah. we'll just pray. Pray that God will deliver us from the qualia we're experiencing of all this heat. Yeah. So, exactly. <laughs> yeah, all right. Through. Well, uh, thanks so much. And, folks, to the rest of you, we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.